Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Nature's Way, maker of winter remedies like Sambucus elderberry gummies. It's not just our way, it's Nature's Way. Learn more at naturesway.com. Thanks for listening. If you're looking for a quiz show that'll make you laugh and think at the same time, check out Ask Me Another. Host Ophira Eisenberg and house musician Jonathan Colton play nerdy games with real contestants and celebrity guests, guessing, say, how many quills are on the average porcupine. Never heard Patrick Stewart give a dramatic reading of a Taylor Swift lyric? Well, you can on NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. Check out Ask Me Another now on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour, where it is time for our fall movie preview. Fittingly, I'm here in the studio with Bob Mondello, film critic for All Things Considered. Hi, Bob. It's good to be here. Bob, you and I just got our first big dose of the films to come this fall at the Toronto International Film Festival, and now we are ready to pass all of our intel along. Sure are. Six-plus days, early morning till after midnight, and now we can share which we think are worth hiring a babysitter for or round up a group of friends. That's right. And rest assured, you'll hear from Stephen Thompson and Glenn Weldon about a lot of these films as they roll out and we get closer to Oscar season. But we thought we'd get some help with The Long View from some folks who have just had the big festival binge that we did. First of all, joining us from member station WBEZ in Chicago, film and TV editor for The Verge and Next Picture Show co-host, Tasha Robinson. Hi, Tasha. Hi, guys. And with us here in non-historic Studio 36 is Bilal Qureshi. Bilal writes about international film and culture for Film Quarterly and for NPR, among others. And not for nothing, he used to be a producer at All Things Considered. Hi, Bilal. Hi, Lyndon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's always good to see you back in the studio. Thank you. Where we like to think you belong. So in order to bring a little uh, order to this really sprawling topic, I want to start by talking about a few headline grabbers from the festival that people might be curious about just based on the personnel. We're going to start with one that all three of you saw, but I didn't, which is The Shape of Water by one Guillermo del Toro. Is that right, Bob? That's the, that's the right guy. And uh, so, so what is this film? Oh, well, Lord. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this one is not easy to describe. We're in the 1960s. Uh, Cold War is raging, and in a lab, a government lab, there are two wonderful um, cleaning ladies. One of them is played by Sally Hawkins, and the other one is played by Octavia Spencer, and um, they encounter a critter. Okay. And the critter looks like the critter from the Black Lagoon. Okay. And the famous film, The Critter from the ba- Black Lagoon. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I, Sally Hawkins sort of um, gets interested in this critter and starts to interact with him. And it's definitely a him, as we discover later. And it's a, uh, it's enchantment ensues, as does a lot of other strangeness. Uh, yeah, I'd also say um, I thought this was the most romantic film that I saw at the Toronto <laughs> Film Festival, which is a strange thing to say. But I was at one of the public screenings at which Guillermo del Toro came out and said that this was a movie about love and in love with love. And so it's the strangest, but I thought most enchanting love story I saw at the festival. It's a very weird but very beautiful film in my view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what's so hard to describe about it. It's just your basic... <laughs> 
space race, <laughs> fish man romance, <laughs> love letter to cinema, packaged up as a semi musical that's also about racism. That's I mean, fair. That's, that's that, fair. That all seems very straightforward mm. to me. Yeah. I thought this was a, a really interesting collection of ideas, um, some of which maybe don't get quite as much play as they should for the film to really hit home. But it's visually gorgeous. Uh, Del Toro is just such an interesting visual stylist. And it's so very specific. I think one of the things that I like about him is that he is in love with some very specific things. He loves monster stories. He loves nostalgia. He loves stories about the past and how it infects and affects the present. And it's just, it's a really interesting collection of things shot very beautifully. And with some really great performances, particularly from Sally Hawkins and from Michael Shannon playing the heavy of the piece. Nice. All right. Well, that is one that I think uh, when we were there, everybody was excited to see. Another one that has a couple of big stars in it is uh, Battle of the Sexes, which stars Emma Stone as Billie Jean King and Steve Carell as Bobby Riggs. And if you don't know that story, when Billie Jean King was sort of at the height of, of women's tennis, she played Bobby Riggs, who at that time was 55 years old, but was a past Wimbledon champion, a very, very good uh, men's tennis player. But by this point, had kind of become a sort of a goofball and a sideshow. Uh, and he challenged uh, first Margaret Court. Right. who was also Which a very prominent. Yeah, yeah, I had forgotten too. <laughs> and he beat Margaret Court and then played Billie Jean King, who felt, I think, pressured to play him according mm-hmm. to the way that this film tells it. And she beat him. It was an incredibly hyped production. Right. I really liked this one a lot. I felt like I very much liked the Emma Stone performance, which I think if you thought Emma Stone was kind of boring in La La Land, I think she's more, I think she's challenging herself significantly more in this role, which has a lot to do with the position that Billie Jean King was in at the time because she was gay, but she wasn't out and she was married to a man and she was really active in trying to get equal pay for women in tennis. And so she felt in this complex position of being kind of baited into this sideshow type of match that she didn't really want to do. And then after Margaret Court lost, she kind of had to. How did you feel about it, Bob? Oh, I thought it was a terrific film and and an interesting look at feminism from Mm -hmm. a position that I wasn't in the headspace for in the 1970s and 80s. Yeah. You know, the the thing that Steve Carell is doing, we kind of expect him to be able to do, but mm-hmm. he does it really nicely. Yeah. Um, very effective. And, yeah. and the And the characters were, I mean, it wasn't just them. It was generous to all the people in the movie. Yeah. It, you know, her, her husband comes across, his wife comes across as real people, which is fairly substantial. Yeah. One that people that, that I have talked to did not like so much was Suburbicon. Um, yeah, it was, which, it was frustrating. Yeah, Suburbicon, you may have seen ads for. It's Matt Damon in a story directed by George Clooney from a script that Clooney worked on with the Coen brothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like 20 years, 20 yeah. years closeted. Mm-hmm. Right. What did you think of it, Tasha? I had a lot of, of problems with it. I find him very interesting as a director, but he's a very uh, politically strident man who wears his beliefs very much on his sleeve and good for him for that. But in this film, I just I feel like the politics end up unbalancing the story. There's a crime comedy, like a a very bleak, dark comedy along the line of the Coen's Fargo or Mm -hmm. Burn After Reading that's playing through roughly 80% of the movie. And then the other 20% is kind of about the persecution of this black family that moves to 
a self-considered idealized white suburb. They're treated just just viciously and horribly. And the film uses that as a strange backdrop for a crime story about a white family. Yeah. And the two pieces never inform each other particularly well. They they don't dialogue with each other. Sometimes it's hard to concentrate on what's going on with the, these these really like greedy, crazy white folks while in the background these horrible things are happening. Right. Bilal, what do you think? I saw it too, and I agree. There did seem to be two components to it. And George Clooney also spoke at Toronto about how this was, you know, they're trying to position it as a post-Charlottesville film about race as well. So it was interesting to see how something like this then gets packaged to be sold later. But I have to say it had an amazing brief, but uh, as always, incredible performance by Oscar Isaac in it as an mm-hmm. insurance agent who comes to sort of investigate the crime story that we're talking about. So I thought that was one of the highlights of an otherwise, yeah, I agree, a, r- a rather kind of uneven film. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, to switch over to something that came out of, comes out of Netflix, um, let's talk a little bit about Mudbound, which is directed by Dee Reese, who made Pariah and a couple of other films that people have, have very much liked. Bilal, you saw this one. I did. It was, um, it's a very epic film in a way. It sort of tells the story of a black sharecropper family that lives with the white property owners, sort of who they're working the land for. And I thought it was a really interesting film because, of course, Dee Reese with both Pariah and Bessie on HBO with Queen Latifah has really, I mean, I think been one of the most important filmmakers of color to be, you know, working at the moment. And and the other thing about this film that I thought was important was it was one of the only major films by a filmmaker of color at TIFF this year. Yeah. Which was really Mm. surprising to me, too, given last year there were many other films. Yeah, I stepped back at some point and realized what a white TIFF I personally had had, which is partly my responsibility. But it also did feel like the pickings were slimmer for filmmakers of color than I'm used to. Absolutely. It has an incredible ensemble uh, mm-hmm. in it, including Carrie Mulligan, Mary J. Blige is in this film. Is it Jason Clark, I believe, who's, mm-hmm. who was in Zero Dark Thirty? He's yes. in this. And so it's a pretty incredible set of actors. And I think what was interesting, since it deals with a question of race in pre-civil rights America, is that it actually is about the economic relationship between a white and a black family, which I also think is kind of interesting as a film about race, yeah. that it actually looks at capital and property as being central themes and what makes this a very difficult dynamic. And so I thought it was actually, uh, I had thematically some very ambitious ideas. I felt it didn't, it wasn't my favorite film, but I, I really admired its ambition. Yeah. I want to talk uh, next about my favorite, one of my favorite filmmakers and one of my least favorite filmmakers made a movie together. They are both Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> and uh, his first directorial <laughs> effort, which he also wrote, is uh, Molly's Game, mm-hmm. which stars Jessica Chastain as a, a real woman named Molly Bloom, who ran a very high-stakes poker game that a lot of very powerful men were involved in. It follows her through, you know, she has the her lawyers, Idris Elba, she's getting kind of cornered by the law enforcement that wants her to cooperate and, and the dishing a lot of dirt and the mob <laughs> and there's all this stuff. You liked Molly's Game better than I did, Bob. Why don't you explain what you what you thought of it? Well, what I was struck by, you know, you expect the characters in a, in a Aaron Sorkin movie to talk fast and cleverly, and they really do. What was impressive to me was he's got a lot of balls in the air at once. Mm-hmm. One of them is taxes and, and tax uh, law. Another is poker. Another is the relationships between all these people in law enforcement. And he was keeping it all up in the air visually. That's something that a director has to do. But often there would be legends on the screen that were explaining things. I, I found myself understanding poker in a way that I, I wouldn't normally, if I sat down, I'd yeah. be a terrible poker player. Mm-hmm. And that and a lot of other things were, were crystal clear to me because he did a lovely job of directing it. 
Now, that doesn't speak to one of the problems <laughs> with the picture. <laughs> yeah. You're better on that one. You know, I, I agree with you. <clears throat> I think the directing is actually quite inventive. Mm-hmm. It's fun to watch. There's an opening sequence in which she's a, they explain her history in skiing, mm-hmm. which I think is wonderful. I really liked that sequence, that opening sequence. It has a great kicker. Everybody sort of responded well to it. It's very crowd-pleasing, that opening. Mm-hmm. As the film goes on, unfortunately, it gives way to one of his worst habits, which is you have, in this case, a female central character, which he doesn't write very often, but a female central character who winds up, in my opinion, being less interesting than any of the men in the movie. She's the central character, and yet she's not very well developed for me. And by the end, what you have is her lawyer giving the rousing speech on her behalf, her dad, played by Kevin Costner, kind of explaining how she feels and why she does the things she does, none of which, based on my admittedly kind of quick read of her book, which I which mm-hmm. I got exactly for this purpose, <laughs> most of that is not in there. Uh. Um, and so it does kind of become him surrounding women with men who explain things to them, which yeah. is one of his worst habits. At the same time, it does have a lot of the kind of poppy pleasures of his dialogue. I think he might be the best living writer of, of dialogue for popular films like this. Yeah, no, he's, um, he's amazing. And it, it is snappy. Yeah. Oh my God, this movie is snappy. Everything about it just sort of yeah. pops and pops and pops. Yeah. It's I, was, I was let down at the end, but much of it is, much of it is good. Mm-hmm. Bob and I also both saw... Now, this is one that I was very resistant to. Um, I am not always on board with James Franco's ironic approach to basically everything in life that now he's going to be an arts (laughs) professor and now he's going to be on a soap opera and make a Lifetime movie. And a lot of it does not appeal to me. He has made a film... Uh, of the book about the making of The Room. So if you are familiar <laughs> with The Room, it is a notoriously terrible film by a guy named Tommy Wiseau. If you've ever heard somebody say, you're tearing me apart, Lisa, it's, it's from that. <laughs> a book was written about the making of that movie. This is an adaptation of that book. So Franco is playing this very odd Uh, filmmaker, Tommy Wiseau. His brother, Dave Franco, plays the buddy who makes the film with him. I saw it at midnight with a rapturous (laughs) crowd of people who love the room. Mm -hmm. And in that in that setting, I will say it was a fun experience. Oh, listen, I had a great time at noon a couple of days later. And on one side of me was sitting a guy and I asked him, you know, how many times have you seen this movie? And he said, oh, way too many. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then I asked the guy on the other side of me and he had never seen the room. Right. So you have a guy who's seen it a zillion times, a guy who's never seen it at all. And I saw it uh, over a decade ago. So I tell you, we we weren't laughing at the same places, mm-hmm. but we were all laughing. So it's I mean it's it's very clever. I I also have to confess I you know you see twenty eight movies in in six days at these at these festivals. I went in there and had forgotten that James Franco was even associated with it and didn't recognize him for yeah. like half the movie. Yeah, I, uh, I, one of my fears about it for people who, who don't know The Room mm-hmm. is that the performance is so strange because he is, <laughs> he is copying Wiseau so mm-hmm. exactly that people who aren't familiar with The Room will look at it and say, what is he doing? What, why is he acting like that? Why is he talking like that? But Happily, was, you find out at the yeah, end yeah. because they, there is a, a hilarious sequence yeah. um, or actually uh, revelation sequence yeah. where they show you just how precisely they have mimicked the scenes yeah. from the room. Yeah. I, it's it's almost to the second for yeah. the line readings and everything about it. It's, yeah. it's kind of amazing. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. Bilal saw uh, another one that we want to talk about in this section, which I also saw, which is I, Tanya. 
the story of Tanya Harding, right. as you might know. I have to say that I felt like I was taking uh, a bit of a risk on this movie because I, I bought actually a public ticket to the screening of mm-hmm. this because it was I wasn't sure if I was going to get into the, to the press screening of it. But I was so in, into the O.J. Simpson remixes that happened in the previous year, and uh-huh. I thought this could be a really interesting yeah. way to look back at something. And I thought it was a brilliant film. It had Margot Robbie in it as Tanya Harding. And I've been a fan of her since The Wolf of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And, and I was really excited to see what she would do with it, whether it would have a sense of humor about it or whether this would be kind of a cliche, mm-hmm. uh, typical biopic. And this was a a great film, I thought. I mean, entertaining, hilarious, dark, also about class in America, I thought sure. in really important and, um, and amazing ways. And uh, and just really well directed. You were talking about a film that was snappy and that moved. Mm-hmm. I felt for me too, this was something that, yeah, I mean, not, I'm not going to make any kind of ice skating, you know, reference here, but it, it definitely moved very fast. <laughs> and I, and I like that about it. But I, and I was enjoying that about this film. It was the most fun I think I had at TIFF. Yeah. He wants to say Land of the Jumps. He wants I, to say. I do. Triple axles, in but fact. It's, yeah. But it's, it's fine. Um, <laughs> yeah, I really liked this. I liked this too. I had seen a document, a very good documentary about the sort of Tanya and Nancy story a few years ago. Uh, if you don't know this story, some of you are young enough. Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan were uh, Olympic caliber American skaters. Nancy Kerrigan was uh, clubbed in the knee just before mm-hmm. the national championships. And there was a whole thing that played out about Tanya Harding's associates perhaps being associated with this, which it turned out they were. The thing that I loved about it that I also want to mention is there is an Allison Janney performance mm. uh, as her mother that I thought was really also wonderful. I, Tanya, very, very good. When we come back, we're going to have some of our festival favorites. Uh, uh, Tasha didn't get to see some of the big movies, but she has a many wonderful favorites to recommend. And uh, we're going to have some smaller gems that deserve a little extra attention. So stick around. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Hulu. With the largest streaming library full of your favorite reality TV shows, Hulu is the home for reality TV's biggest fans. Catch all the drama, all the tears, all the heartbreak, all the competition. Because Hulu has your reality TV. Start your free trial today. Learn more at Hulu.com. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. We're here doing our fall film preview with Bob Mondello and Bilal Qureshi and Tasha Robinson. We're going to talk about a few of the other things that we liked. Bob, I want you to kick us off with what it turns out was the audience award winner. The audience favorite award. Um, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. That's got to be the strangest title mm. at, the, at the festival this year. It's all about the South, about race, about what else? Uh, it's basically everything Suburbicon wanted to be. Ah, uh, yeah. It's a very smart, very dark comedy about a woman who puts up these billboards because her daughter has been raped and murdered, and the local police chief, uh, who is played by Woody Harrelson, will not or has not uh, moved on on the case. And she's and Frances McDormand. Frances right? McDormand, and mm-hmm. it it feels like a Coen Brothers movie. It is sensational and funny and bizarre and funny. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it's, it's it's a wonderful picture, and you can totally see why it became, although I was having trouble figuring out what was going to be the audience favorite this year, because it seemed to me there were a lot of, of popular pictures. It's easy to see why this one would have clicked with audiences. It's, yeah. uh, it's really terrific. Yeah. Hey, in a way, it's hard for me to see why it clicked with audiences, because it is a terrific film, but the sympathies in that film are so 
complicated. Mm-hmm. It's like it's a really rich film that throws a lot of different painful things on the screen. And it's it, like it's it's a fascinating experience. I loved the film, but yeah. I, I wouldn't have been surprised if audiences rejected it. Yeah. Well, I want to go to one from you, Tasha, which is I Kill Giants. I Kill Giants is an adaptation of one of my all-time favorite graphic novels uh, written by Joe Kelly about a young girl who has described her career as fighting and killing giants. The twist is that it takes place in the modern world and there are no giants. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of a question going on of reality throughout the film. Is she tapped into something that nobody else can see? It's a very Guillermo del Toro kind of film sort of visually and emotionally. And it's all kind of about this journey that this young girl has. The audience can see the giants. Nobody else can. Mm. So the, the question is exactly what's going on. Sounds cool. Oh, it's it's so wonderful. It <laughs> features a, a, a central performance by a girl named Madison Wolf, uh, who has a bunch of TV experience as an actress. And she is just so luminous and so powerful in this role. It's a first-time film by a gentleman named Andrews Walter, who previously won a short film Oscar, Uh, for a a short called Helium. Mm. But this is his first feature. And it's one of those first features where you say, this guy's going to go on to do tremendous things. Uh, So is everyone in the film. It's a really emotional experience, but it's also a really visually beautiful one. Mm -hmm. All right. I want to ask Bilal about one that Bob and I also love. This one's kind of a slam dunk. This is the uh, (laughs) also popular coming out of Sundance. Call me by your name. Let's talk about this. Yeah, so this is this very, very beautiful Italian film uh, by Luca Guadagnino, who made I Am Love and A Bigger Splash, both films that Tilda Swinton was really well known for. And he makes these, I mean, very extraordinary kind of Italian vistas, like, you know, beautiful sunlight, summers usually. This is a coming-of-age story. It's a gay love story. And it's one of those movies I felt when you watch it, you can just feel like you're seeing a classic as you're watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, it's based on a very famous novel. It, it's a... Uh, it's about an older graduate student who comes for the summer to work with a professor who studies Italian statuary. So there's classical, you know, classical antiquities, there's mm. poetry, there's music. It's one of those very European, but also very accessible and heartwarming films. And I think it'll be, yeah, like I said, it felt like you were watching a classic while you were seeing it for the first time. Yeah. And it is, as you said, it is a coming of age story because you have the the 17-year-old son of the professor who gets right. so infatuated w- with this 24-year-old graduate student. And then they very much fall in love. And there's some wonderful work by the, particularly Michael Stuhlbarg, playing the father mm. of the professor, uh, so the father of the of the boy. It is so romantic mm-hmm. and it's so pretty and it's so subtle because there are moments where you realize that there are really things coming out of the story that, that weren't obvious. This is one where you have to, the director has to be really on his game because because it's written by James Ivory. It's his first script in, in 14 years since The Merchant mm. Ivory folks. And it's just gorgeous, but but oblique. There are times where, you know, I, I remember a scene where the, the kid says something like, why are you doing this to me? And you know exactly what he means, but there's nothing, it kind of isn't there. And oh my God, it's it's really an emotional powerhouse. Yeah. Mm. It, and it was interesting because, you know, Army Hammer, who plays the 24-year-old, is somewhat older than that in mm. real life, but plays the, the grad student is a guy who, you know, people saw him a lot in the social network and he was kind of kicking around and then he made The Lone Ranger and I think there was a thing that was like, oh, maybe he's going to be like a big blockbustery. He's going to be yeah, like that... what Chris Pratt <laughs> turned into, right? Mm. He's going to be like an action star or a franchise guy. 
And that kind of tanked. Mm -hmm. And what has emerged from that is instead of following that path, he made what I think at some points would have been an unexpected move for a guy who's in the Lone Ranger, which is to go to this very, very kind of artsy feeling, Mm -hmm. Italian feeling gay love story. And I wound up being so glad that the Lone Ranger didn't go anywhere because I really (laughs) love this performance. Otherwise you'd be stuck in this kind of, yeah. Uh, Tasha, I want to go back to you. You saw a film that... I heard from some other people was very entertaining called Mom and Dad. <laughs> Mom and Dad was flat out the most fun I had at TIFF. And it's I'm not going to claim that it's a good movie. It's it's not <laughs> that kind of movie. It's a fun movie. Uh, it was directed, written and directed by Brian Taylor, uh, who is half of the Neville Dean and Taylor pair up, who gave us the Crank movies and Ghost Rider 2. Oh, yeah. They're known for adrenaline up, ridiculous, over-the-top movies. And Mom and Dad stars Nicolas Cage and Selma Blair as parents who undergo a a strange phenomenon where they feel a need to kill their children. And it's a moment out of the M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Happening, essentially. Mm. Just something happens (laughs) and worldwide... Everyone feels a need to kill their children. And it is fun to watch in the same way uh, The Happening was fun to watch, in that it's ridiculous. But Nicolas Cage, you never know what you're going to get with Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. sometimes he shows up for his movies and sometimes he doesn't. He's a box of but... chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> well, this particular chocolate is uh, made out of uh, explosive candy and habanero sauce. <laughs> it is an amazing performance by Nicolas Cage. But the whole movie is just uh, is over the top and revved up and fun. It was modeled in a way after Night of the Living Dead. You know, the mm. idea is that there's a worldwide phenomenon. No one knows what happened, but everybody has to deal with it. Uh, but then it operates on this just completely manic level. One of the things I loved about it was it really kind of digs into the antipathy kind of lurking low beneath the surface of parents who devote their lives to their children and see ingratitude or just have a a creeping feeling that their children have stolen their youth and are coming along to replace them. And it, it digs at some really interesting thoughts by way of this really over-the-top, gory, hilarious action. Um, it's looking for distribution, and I really hope it finds it. It's It's got to turn up somewhere. Yeah. In a very, very, very different story about uh, parents <laughs> and kids, one of the ones that I wanted to talk about was uh, is a film called The Florida Project. Oh, love this. Which, so The Florida Project is Sean Baker's film. He last made Tangerine, which was the story of two transgender women kind of wandering around L.A., And it kind of became very beloved for its natural feel. It was shot on an iPhone. So this is Sean Baker not shooting on an iPhone. Right. And with an actual star. Yeah, with more resources Mm -hmm. and with Willem Dafoe. Mm -hmm. And the the story is about a six-year-old girl and a couple of friends that she has living in a motel near Orlando. So it's kind of in the shadow Walt Disney World economy where, you know, you have motels that kind of sound Disney adjacent, but they're not actually (laughs) related to the Disney property. You have people selling counterfeit merch. You have people selling kind of shady, potentially hot entry wristbands. There's a a whole kind of grind around Mm -hmm. Disney World that's not actually Disney World. And these motels are part of it. And her her single mother is very poor. And so they live in this motel. Day to day. Day to day. And and it's a thing that a fair number of very poor people do Mm -hmm. at times. There's a wonderful feeling in this movie, I think, for the small day to day 
operation of a life like that, the way that you have to move for a while so that you don't establish residency because the motel doesn't want you to establish residency and become a tenant and, mm-hmm. and have tenant landlord-tenant kinds of rights so they make you leave and they take a picture of you leaving so that they can prove, you know, the kind of that grind of, of being poor. But at the same time, this girl is so natural and kind of lived in and she and effervescent and effervescent she's so much fun to watch even though she's in these very difficult circumstances I think all the performances in the film are really good including you know Willem Dafoe has really gone down a particular road Mm -hmm. as he's gotten older he often plays these like very grizzled harsh dudes Mm -hmm. and here he's kind of this kind-hearted motel owner or motel manager Mm -hmm who tries to keep these people as safe as possible while also trying not to get taken advantage of. Right. I really, really love this performance, and I loved the film. It could so easily have gone wrong. I mean, I realized about halfway through the picture that I was <laughs> I was at a movie in which small children were screaming mm-hmm. for most of the time, either on camera or slightly off camera, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and yet it didn't bother me at all. I was I was so engaged by them and yeah. by it, and it, I, it's just lovely. I love that movie. Yeah. So I want to go back to Bob. Would you like to talk about the Sammy Davis Jr. Oh, picture, very much the documentary I, that you I wandered stumbled. Into? into this one. I, I went to it mostly because I, I had gotten up too early one morning and there was time before the movie I wanted to see. And so I slipped in about a minute after it had started and was so held by it, I almost missed the movie that I wanted to see because uh-huh. it was I, just captivating. I did Sammy Davis Jr.'s obit many years ago, back in the early 90s. And I did a lot of research about him at the time, and I thought I knew his career backwards and forwards, and, I, you know, like, I love the guy's singing, and, oh, my Lord, I, the things I didn't know about this man. It was it was really fascinating, and, and he was very forthcoming about a lot of things in his life on television shows back when TV uh, interview shows like Merv Griffin and things like that were were not just about personalities, but were actually about something. And you, he's a fascinating performer. Anyway, I had a ball at this movie. Yeah. It was it was really something. I'm not even sure that that has a release date, but yeah. it's 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 really terrific. Docs it's, often you never know exactly what's going to yeah. happen to them. It's called I Gotta Be Me. It's really sensational. All right, Bilal, I want to go over to you for a film called In the Fade. Yeah, so this is a film from Germany um, by this German director, Fateh Akun, who's of Turkish background. So he often makes movies about kind of new Germanness and the question of being European now at the intersection of many cultures. This is a very interesting film because it's actually Diane Kruger's first German film. Oh, People sure. People may know her, you know, from Troy onward to the show The Bridge, and she's done other things, but she's actually from Germany, and so she goes to be in this film. She won the top acting prize at Cannes for this film, but this was about a, a woman who's married to a German of Turkish background, who is killed in a terrorist attack along with her son. And it's about this grieving mother who then has to deal with the question of justice and vengeance. And so it's a terrorism film in a very surprising way about a neo-Nazi attack on an interracial couple in Germany. So it kind of flips the terrorism Mm -hmm. film on its head Mm -hmm. and then specifically tells it through this very narrow portrait of this woman grappling with this. And it's an amazing film. It's very powerful. It's very timely. It's very intense. um, And it will be coming out in cinemas too. So I think it's something that will surprise people with her because I think she's been seen as one of these very glamorous European actresses, Mm -hmm. but an incredible actress. Yeah. Uh, It was a great film. Yeah. 
And another one that I wanted to talk about was uh, Chappaquiddick, which mm. really surprised me because I really thought that I was about burnt out on depictions <laughs> of, of the Kennedys. But Chappaquiddick, if you're not familiar with the historical incident, was when uh, Ted Kennedy, who at the time was a senator, drove his car late at night off a bridge during a kind of a, a weekend vacation of sorts. And he was accompanied by a young woman who had worked for his brother, Bobby Kennedy. And she drowned when the car went off the bridge and he sort of escaped. It became quite a scandal, but not maybe as much as you would think it would have. Um, And he remained a senator. And Jason Clark, we mentioned Jason Clark earlier, plays Ted Kennedy. Ed Helms, surprisingly enough, plays kind of his right hand fixer type of guy Hmm. in a very straightforward, dramatic performance and I think is really good. The film is really an indictment of privilege and power and the way that people in power, according to the telling of this this film, the way that people protect power and protect dynasties. I was surprised that I cared about it. I think Clark is very good. They cast Kate Mara as Mary Jo Kopechny, who's uh-huh. the young woman who died, which I think casting a recognized actress, even though she's not in the film for very long, yeah. I think casting a recognized actress was probably an intentional move to give that character some weight and make sure that she wasn't kind of anonymous compared to the right, other people in the film. Right, you don't want her to just film. be a prop, right? This is one of the more successful Kennedy films that I personally have, have seen. Do you watch historical ones, Tasha? I watch them. I tend to dislike them. Uh, One of the (laughs) things that I did see at uh, TIFF was Darkest Hour, which Mm. is a film about Churchill and his decision to not engage in peace talks with Germany leading up to the UK's involvement in World War II and the Battle of Dunkirk and a bunch of other things. And it's a really interesting film to come rolling along right after Dunkirk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It also... It engages in conversation in an interesting sort of way with the King's speech. But mm. films like that, I find myself very distanced from because either I know the history and I know what they're getting wrong, or I don't know the history <laughs> and I'm worried about what they're getting wrong. Yeah. Um. You know, historical films to me just so often take a distanced approach to what actually happened and summarize real events in ways that that make them compact and palatable and phony. I watch these films in large part because I have to, but I always approach them with such a cynical eye as this might be really interesting storytelling, but is it relevant to history? Does it actually get at anything that happened? Yeah. All right. We're going to do one more round, which is name a film that you would like to get more attention than you think perhaps it's going to, something that you want to give a boost to. Bob, I'm going to go to you first. Outside In, new film by uh, Lynn Shelton. She is the woman who made Hump Day, and she made uh, My Sister's Sister not too long ago. She likes to put characters into basically untenable situations and watch what they do. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's a very interesting small indie picture about a guy who gets out of prison largely because Edie Falco's helped him get out of prison, uh, Edie Falco playing his, uh, his high school teacher, and then what their relationship is in this small town afterwards and it's uh it's a really smart and quirky and just sort of interesting movie yeah all right bob mandelo bilal qureshi give me a boost 
The film I've chosen for this section is Looking for Um Kultum, which is a film by Shirin Nishat, who's an Iranian-American artist. So she actually, like Steve McQueen, is a a star of the kind of modern gallery world and has had huge museum exhibitions. and And she deals a lot with the question of women, Islam, feminism, their rights, their voice. And she's been moving more and more into feature filmmaking. And this is an amazing film about the most famous singer from Egypt, Um Kulthum, and she was kind of the national icon of Egypt. And it's a movie kind of within a movie of an Iranian filmmaker making a movie about Um Kulthum. So it's kind of, it, it wow. does this sort of cyclical <laughs> thing, but then it uses it as a way to explore what is women's voice in that part of the world? Was it? What does it mean to be an artist? What does it mean to balance family, nation, uh, art? And it's, it's also, because she's a visual artist, every frame of it could hang in a gallery. Mm. It's very beautiful. And uh, she's a really unique kind of visualist. And so I, th- I think it's a really interesting extension of her from being the star of the gallery world. She had a retrospective at the Hirshhorn last year and talked about this was her project. And this is the kind of thing you find at festivals, not usually playing at big multiplexes. Uh-huh. And, I, and I hope it will have a life outside of the, the gallery world. Yeah. So looking for Um Kaltum. That's right. Thank you very much. All right, Tasha Robinson, what's your boost? My boost is a film called Marrowbone. 2007's The Orphanage is one of my all-time favorite horror films. It's so smart. It's so sophisticated. And it is so frightening without resorting to cheap jump scares. The screenwriter of The Orphanage has made his first film, and it is also a very twisty, sophisticated, thoughtful horror movie. His name is Sergio G. Sanchez. And this film, it's, gosh, it's so beautiful. It is, again, one of those films that you think, this is this man's first film, and he produces something this visually assured and complicated and rich and and lovely. But also the the performances are amazing. Uh, George McKay and Anna Taylor-Joy, who started and the witch both star in this. It's a gothic horror story about a group of four children who come to live in a a big old dilapidated house with their dying mother after something horrible happens with their father and kind of unfolding what the history is between them and where they're going from there is the meat of the film. It's a film that takes place in kind of a couple of different timelines slowly unfolding. And it's a haunted house story of sorts. It's a horror story of sorts. It's a family story of sorts. It's just so luminous. It's so intense and beautiful and kind of like lush and almost overblown in a way. Uh, I just, I really want more people to see Marrowbone. I really want Sergio G. Sanchez to have a long and vibrant career directing this kind of horror movie. Marabone, thank you very much, Tasha. Tasha talked about a first movie. I'm going to go to the opposite end and talk about uh, Frederick Wiseman, who has been making <laughs> documentaries for decades and decades. And he had a film at uh, TIFF called Ex Libris, the New York Public Library. And if you think that I am the person who's going to go sit in like a three hour and 20 minute documentary about the library, uh, you are correct. <laughs> it is It is so interesting. It is about the public library, not just the big building off of Bryant Park uh, mm-hmm. in Manhattan, which is, is so lions. beloved with the lions, <laughs> but all of the other branches uh, scattered in several of the boroughs and the functions that they serve, not just, uh, you know, not just books, mm-hmm. but people who do online research, people who are 
trying to find their their ancestors, people who are trying to find very obscure information and need help from librarians, people in smaller rooms who perhaps you've never heard of, people giving homework assistance to kids, people doing job fairs computer training for people who don't have computer training. They even have a thing where there's a library loan system for internet hotspots so that people who don't have internet at home can get a little hotspot that they can take home so that they have internet at home. He just goes from place to place. And Wiseman's style is there's no narration. There's no uh, on-screen identification of people, which has the effect of kind of anonymizing everyone and making it seem a bit like it's more of a, a portrayal of kind of a chunk of humanity than it is individual people. It's also one of my favorite movies about New York that I I have seen in a long time. It is a wonderful portrayal of how New York is this mix of, you know, highfalutin library donors, but also people working hard to help out kids with homework and then all kinds of stuff. So I love this film. It's called Ex Libris. Um, It is playing on a very limited basis. DC, for example, is getting it for just a week at the AFI um, in Silver Spring. You kind of have to Google it and see whether it's coming to your town. But eventually, it will also be streamable and rentable. And that is where I think a lot of people will see it. I really hope that people will, will seek it out. Ex Libris. Okay, that brings us to the end of our fall preview. When we come back, we're going to talk about our favorite other topic, which is what is making us happy this week. So come right back. Support for NPR and the following message come from Netflix's Contoto, presenting Brown Love, a new podcast that aims to bring together the best and brightest of Latino Hollywood to get real about the industry and all the things Latinx communities are talking about on your timeline. Each week, the show features a roundtable of Latino actors, including Diane Guerrero from Orange is the New Black and Jessica Marie Garcia from On My Block. New episodes of Brown Love drop every Tuesday. Subscribe now where you listen to podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Pocket Casts. From Hidden Brain to How I Built This, from Planet Money to Code Switch, enjoy all your favorite NPR podcasts on Pocket Casts, a free and feature-filled podcasting app. And now they're offering NPR listeners even more. Try Pocket Cast Plus for three months free and take your podcast listening experience to the next level. Visit pocketcast.com slash NPR to redeem your trial. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It is time for our favorite segment, What is Making Us Happy This Week? I'm going to go first to Bob Mondello. Bob, what is making you happy this week? Well, I was going to say that what was making me happy was A Little Light Music at Signature Theater. And then I went to look for a clip so that Jessica could play it Mm -hmm. on the show. And instead, I found uh, clips of Stephen Sondheim doing master classes. These millennials and their oh, short attention spans. Oh, my God. Spans. I have no attention span at all when it comes to Sondheim. I love his work so much. Mm-hmm. And here he is explaining to someone how to sing a song from A Little Night Music called Later. Later. When is Later. All you ever hear is later, Henrik. Henrik, later. Now, that's already too angry. He thinks of himself as a tragic figure, as somebody put upon, as somebody with the weight of the world, which is why he's studying for the ministry. I mean, he just feels that he must, you know, serve in the army of God because it's the only thing left for him because it's just, oh, as opposed to anger. It's, it's, mm. He's not angry that way. Mm-hmm. He is. It is just remarkable. I, listening to him talk about this stuff is is just fascinating and of course he's he's the best songwriter who's 
been working in my lifetime, certainly. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's just, he's amazing. And this is fascinating stuff. Just fascinating. All right. Thank you, Bob. Bilal Qureshi, what is making you happy this week, sir? Um, I'm stepping a little bit into your wheelhouse, but I have an award show thing that's making me happy. It's Riz Ahmed winning the Emmy for The Night Of. Uh, He's somebody I had interviewed four years ago for All Things Considered. Oh, wow. And when he was just kind of a starting young actor, I actually interviewed him at Toronto, and he was just so unknown and kind of under the radar. And it's been amazing to see his ascent, but also the series. He beat, I think, Benedict Cumberbatch and Ewan McGregor in that category for the series and has become clearly a big star. Didn't he beat Robert De Niro? Yeah, I think Robert Mm. De Niro as well. But it's just, you know, it's amazing to see somebody who's who's so it seems really quickly it feels to everyone is like oh, where did he come from but you know mm-hmm. you know that they've been working in smaller films for a while and they find that moment and he is the first I think South Asian first Muslim to have won an Emmy for acting and is a really generous person is a very good actor and I think it'll be really interesting what an opportunity like that opens up for someone like him yeah so I'm, I'm excited because I don't know what else is coming now yeah. because of this so he's a, he's a great actor yeah that was a that was a very nice moment very often in the diversity conversations around the Emmys we talked mostly about black actors right and the the representation of of Asians and it, it's even worse on television so right. it's it was great to see thank you Bilal Tasha what is making you happy this week the last time I was on the what's making us happy segment I recommended Carolyn Rahman's 20% true podcast which is a whimsical but grounded collection of short stories with magical realist and fantasy touches so I am going to utterly pigeonhole myself by recommending Leslie Neka Arima's short story collection what it means when a man falls from the sky which is a whimsical but grounded collection of short stories with magic realism, <laughs> fantasy touches. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I hate to pigeonhole myself, but I just finished reading this book and it's it's so lovely. It reminds me in a way of Roxane Gay's stories, not just because they're exclusively about people of color um, and because they're coming from the background of someone with uh, experience outside of kind of like the white American experience. Arima was born in the UK but grew up in Nigeria. And all of these stories kind of touch on Nigeria or Lagos or the Congo, uh, these like African stories in some way. But they run a really wide gamut from extremely realistic uh, human stories to fantasy fables to science fiction. The, just the diversity of the collection is amazing. But at heart, they all kind of come down to stories about fierce women, about how women defend themselves, about how they're assailed by the world, about how they protect their inner emotions, and how they either come out fighting or how they lose that fight. It's her debut collection, and it showcases, I think, a width of talent, like an ability to take certain ideas and transform them into all sorts of different kinds of of aspects of ways of looking at the world. And it's really remarkable. Thank you very much, Tasha Robinson. Sounds interesting. Tell me that name again. What it means when a man falls from the sky. Thank you very much. All right. I am circling back uh, to a topic that I think I made a recommendation about uh, quite a while ago. And that is uh, Polaroid film. Um, mm. There was some news mm. this week about uh, the reintroduction of one of the Polaroid cameras. They've changed the technology around the instant film, um, but they have redeveloped it. And it there's a whole backstory that is completely fascinating about how Polaroid, around the time that digital cameras were becoming so popular, they essentially were phasing out Polaroid film. And then it turned out that there was this community of people who were extremely passionate about Polaroids. Um, and so there was uh, something called the Impossible Project that was basically other people trying to figure out how to make film that would work. Because when Polaroid was going to stop making film, they had the technology to do it and nobody else really knew how to make it. 
But there is a documentary that I discovered years ago at a documentary festival here in D.C. uh, called Time Zero, The Last Year of Polaroid Film. And it is about this community of artists Mm -hmm. and what they were doing, like hoarding Polaroid film during this (laughs) during this uh, last year. And there are famous people in it. John Waters is in it talking about how he took a Polaroid of everyone who came into his house for he kind of says with a wink for any reason. It is a great documentary for talking about the way that people really interact with art and with cultural objects. And I I really like the documentary. It is streamable. It is out there. Uh, Again, it's called Time Zero. The last year of Polaroid film. And that brings us to the end of this show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow me at NPR Monkey C. You can follow Bob at Bob underscore Mondello. You can follow Tasha at Tasha Robinson. Bilal's not on Twitter. Bilal just lives his life. You can follow our producer, Jessica <laughs> underscore Reedy, and our producer, Mike Katzif. Mike Katzif, K A T Z I F. Mike's band, Hello Come In, provides our in and out music, which you're tapping your foot to right now. Thank you guys so much for being here and sharing all your picks. Thank you for having us. This was great. Yes, absolutely. And thank you all for listening, and we will see you right back here next week.